0: Well, good evening and welcome to Bible Conference 2024. We are thrilled to be kicking off this week of Bible Conference. As I was walking in tonight, I was smelling the air and wasn't sure if I was smelling beta dogs or Johnson burgers or a combination of the two, but there are lots of exciting things and lots of great food that will be around all week long, but we are gathering for Bible Conference in light of our theme. We're being called to lift up our eyes and look on the fields cultivate a heart for the harvest be in prayer for our speakers as they will preach throughout the week most of those who are coming from out of town are still traveling today some had to deal with weather and those sort of things so pray for them to arrive safely pray that God will work in our hearts during this week pray for God to work in your heart this week is intentionally set aside to be a priority for us to layer the Word of God on our hearts through all the services that we have the privilege of being in together. We'll do that in a number of ways. We'll pray together in these services, there'll be lots of opportunities for you to sing and worship the Lord, to hear special music, and we pray that God will use it all kind of as a grand symphony to tune our hearts to the frequency of heaven. As we begin this conference, we're going to start tonight with prayer. And I'm going to invite Brock Drennan to come. He's a senior biblical studies major from Vero Beach, Florida, to open us in prayer. Brock, you come.
1: Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you tonight uh, just burdened uh, for lost souls. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you will use this week to impact each and every one of our lives to be burdened for those that don't know you. I pray that this week will be used to revitalize our lives and revive us Lord and I want to pray that for Dr. Benson as he comes tonight um, to preach the word given the words to speak uh, let your word be shown through him and I also pray dear Heavenly Father um, that you will guide us and give us Uh, some word and, and inspiration from your word tonight. I pray for all the chapel speakers and all the night services and everything as you work. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Each of us comes to the Lamb of
2: God broken in sin. We come to him and confess our sin and repent of it. We thank him and rejoice and revel in what he offers at the cross. Just as I am, I come broken. Stand to sing. Thanks to the Tuba Euphonium Choir prepared by Dr. Paul Overly. We come to Jesus broken and ruined by sin. We find all that we need there at his cross, and that becomes our solid rock and our only hope. It's found in nothing else. Stand to sing the solid rock.
0: singing tonight. Thank you for singing out. I hope as you affirm the truth that we're singing, that God roots it deeply in your hearts. I believe that we, this week, as we contemplate needing to share the gospel, need to revel in the gospel if we're going to share the gospel the way we should. We'll talk about that some tonight. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about our offering Uh, Our students will remember that we had the privilege of having Reba Bowman with us, the Executive Director of Dare for More Ministries. Um, But those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you, and uh, we want to share with you kind of exactly what our Bible Conference fundraiser and our offering uh, is about. And so in just a moment, we're going to show a video for us here and for you as well to remind ourselves about the wonderful ministry that we are partnering with. A couple of announcements for you before that. Uh, I want to invite all of us to come together in the mornings and pray for this conference. Pray for God to do a great work in our hearts. Pray for God to call some of us to commit our lives full-time to gospel work. I want us to pray for revival on our campus. And so every morning at 9.15, starting in Grace Levinson Chapel, we'll have a prayer meeting. I'm hoping that when we gather there in the morning... We actually will fill the place, and if that's the case, we'll move to Stratton Hall, and those prayer meetings will be in Stratton Hall. But I hope hundreds of you will come at 9.15 in the morning. That prayer meeting is slated to last 30 minutes. We know the service is at 10. We will be done, uh, quarter till 10, so that we have plenty of time to come over and get seated and be in the service, and yet have what we've been praying about be fresh on our hearts. And so I hope you will come. It's for faculty, staff, alumni, friends in town, um, and, and students. I want us all to come together in the mornings and pray. And then also, Sermon Audio and Student Development and Discipleship are partnering together and want to invite you to be a a part of a special 24-hour prayer meeting, specifically for Bible Conference. The prayer time will be held live Thursday at 7 p.m., and it'll run until Friday at 7 p.m. On the second floor of the MAC building in the Sermon Audio Vault Conference Room, we encourage you to attend the prayer meeting in person if you can but if you can't, you're welcome to come and join via a Zoom call. Uh, for students, your GLAGLRA resident mentor or resident supervisor will be gl- glad to give you more information on this. Uh, for those of you who want to come, we're making provision. If you want to come and join in the middle of the night, I want to encourage you to do that. At the top of every hour, there will be someone that will share about a 10 minute thought or devotional with regard to prayer that we hope will be a tremendous encouragement to you. But we want to commit as a body to be together before the Lord for a 24-hour period leading in to our closing service on Friday night. Let's watch together a video about Dare for More Ministry and the opportunity that is ahead of us. And then Dr. Gary Weir is going to come with some other announcements and lead us in prayer for our
3: offering.
2: What a privilege it is, our, is, is for us this week as we have the privilege of partnering with Dare for More Ministries and see what the Lord would do as we seek to minister to the lives of women um, so that they can hear the gospel and have their lives transformed. So, let me um, give a few announcements of some fundraisers that are taking place uh, this week, even this night. Uh, First of all, Smith Residence Hall welcomes you to the second annual running of Smith Mini Golf. Starting after the evening service until, until 1045 p.m., arrive at Alumni 110 to commence your journey through this historic course. Options will be available to play three, six, or 12 holes with the price being $3, $5, and $7, respectively. Also, the Beta Gamma Delta Patriots will be selling their world famous or maybe campus famous Beta Dogs following the evening service. You can stop by the Davis Fieldhouse Plaza and buy yours today while the supplies last. And Bible Conference would not be complete without the Theta Sigma Chi Colts Volleyball Tournament. Following the evening service, head to the DF, DFH to watch teams go head to head and see who will be declared this year's winner. If you think it could be you, you still have a chance to sign up. All players must be registered by 9 p.m. and it's only $5 to play and $2 to spectate. Feeling competitive or looking for a fun fundraiser to do with friends? You can sign up for the first ever Bible Conference Dodgeball Tournament hosted by the Pi Kappa Sigma Cobras Via the QR code that's posted around campus. If playing the game is not quite your speed, come spectate and see who will be crowned dodgeball champion. It's only $5 to play and $2 to spectate. Well, again, we are very thankful for all these fundraisers and for what the Lord has already done toward our goal of raising $150,000 for two specially equipped vehicles. Uh, that will be very important for the ministry for Dare for More. So just an update of where we are. Uh, $25,000, as Dr. Benson has already announced, has been donated through our demerit fund to get things started. And Public Safety's lost and found sale has raised $518. Uh, Meats, which is our student organization of minorities empowered to educate and serve, has raised $250. And the Student Leadership Council's lost and found sale has raised $300. The Nursing Association's coffee fundraiser has raised $215.90. And then about $2,000 has come in through mail and online gifts for a current total of $28,789.90. So we're very thankful for what the Lord is already doing And we should all consider what the Lord would have us to do to be a part of this. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, uh, if you would, at this time. And we'll have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to move in our hearts. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of partnering with others who desire to reach some of the most needy with the saving message of Christ. We thank you for the ministry of Dare for More. Thank you for the many women that they've already ministered to and those who've come to a saving knowledge of Christ because of what they have done. And I pray that you would use these gifts that have already come in and the gifts that will be given tonight and throughout this week to accomplish your purposes. May Christ be magnified through what takes place. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Thank the percussion ensemble for their ministry to us tonight under the leadership of David Townsend and also Dr. Bruce Cox leading them tonight of our music faculty. And what a blessing that was. Praise to the Lord um, Almighty. Well, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Alan Benson, our acting CEO. And I am tempted to say that he has promised to sing a solo tonight. But that may turn into a duet, or a trio, or maybe even a quartet. I I don't know for sure. But but he is going to preach, and he's going to preach God's word. And we're going to trust the Lord as he uses his word and the Spirit teaches us. And I pray that we would respond humbly to his word tonight, each one of us. I really appreciate and respect Dr. Benson. Uh, He came here, I believe it was in the summer of 2018, uh, he had served in pastoral ministry at four different churches that I'm aware of, three of which as senior pastor, and I know the Lord used him in each of those, uh, each of those locations, each, each of those places. Uh, he holds three seminary degrees, including a doctor of ministry from right here at, at BJU um, Seminary. Now, we've all had the privilege of seeing his public leadership and benefiting from his public leadership uh, in chapel. And in other other venues around campus as he has led even our faculty and staff uh, during our faculty staff meetings. Uh, I, along with others, have had the privilege of seeing him lead behind closed doors in more private settings. And I can tell you that he is faithful to God's word, uh, seeking to do his will, whether it's in these public venues or in the more private venues as well. And God has raised him up to serve in a very special role. Uh, This year here at BJU and we're very thankful for him and we're looking forward to what he will do as he preaches tonight to get our Bible conference off to the start that the Lord would have uh, for us tonight. Before he comes, uh, Leah Najimi will come and minister to our hearts through music.
4: And I perish, I perish, dear man.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Open your Bibles, if you would, tonight to the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter, John chapter 4. I love Bible Conference. It was back in 1986. I was in the 10th grade in Nova Scotia, Canada and got in a van with 15 other people and we drove from Nova Scotia to Greenville, South Carolina for Bible Conference. I remember pulling on campus, getting out. It was the first time I'd ever been to Bob Jones. Coming into this building and listening to the services and being moved by God in such a great way. I remember then the very first time I was asked upon returning to work here at the university to speak at Bible Conference and being so nervous and tonight here i am hosting bible conference and i'm nervous all over again these are special days days that i have been praying for days in which i am longing to see god work in our hearts together and i hope you are too i love the gospel of john I love the Gospel, I love the Gospels, but in particular my favorite of the Gospels is the Gospel of John, and it's because of some of the unique characteristics that we find in this Gospel. I'll point out some of them tonight as we explore a little bit of our theme. What do I mean, what do I think God means by this idea of cultivating a heart for the harvest? And in particular then we'll look. In a passage in John chapter 4, I want to start by reading some there. So, turning there, John chapter 4, you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or, Why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come! See, a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meantime, or in the mean, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say, not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest, and he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him, and he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. Tonight, I want us to see that we must have Jesus' heart for the harvest. Or, if you will, we must see the harvest through Jesus' eyes. As I mentioned, John's gospel is unique. It's unique in a number of ways. I wanted you to consider just a few things, because it's here that I want us to understand a little bit about cultivating a heart, or cultivating a heart for the harvest. John begins his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and it was life, and the life was the light of men. And he continues on, and then in verse 14 he says this, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John identifies himself and others as witnesses of this one who was the word in the beginning and who was the life. John writes this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. In John 21, 25, he writes this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John's gospel is unique in this sense. It is unique in that it has purposely selected material, In order to convey a particular message, that message is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The book contains seven selected miracles that clearly demonstrate with clarifying intensity that Jesus is the Messiah... John refers to these miracles by the Greek word semeion or signs. These were miracles done and selected by John that demonstrate clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. Interspersed throughout these miracles are are narratives, They're, they're didactic sections where Jesus is teaching. These teaching sections further demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah and they corroborate the message of the miracles. All of the material being purposefully selected. But there's an additional feature that you find in John's Gospel. It's a feature that's not necessarily unique to John, but it's much more pronounced in his account of the life of Christ. I believe it is intentionally a part of the material that he selected to include. And that material is this, It is the accounts of Jesus' very personal interactions with the disciples. Let me give you some examples. After the miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, where he changed water to wine, John records this in chapter 2 and verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And then he adds this. And his disciples believed on him. John is the only writer that includes that last little line where he references the disciples. Throughout John's gospel, there's a pronounced mentioning of the disciples. John 2.2, 2, and his disciples. John 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written. John 4.8 notes, for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. John more emphatically records the details of private conversations that the disciples had among themselves. John 4, says this, Therefore said the disciples one to another, Have any man brought him aught to eat? John chapter 6 records for us the account of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And it gives us another unique insight into this private dynamic between Jesus and his disciples. John chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Verse 6 says this, And this he said to prove him. For he himself knew what he would do. John is the only gospel writer that includes that. You may not have been aware. that it wasn't the disciples that came to Jesus and said, are you going to send these people home? We don't have anything to feed them. Before they ever gathered, Jesus said to Philip, hey, I want you to be thinking about something. I want you to be thinking about how we're going to feed these people. And he did it, John tells us, to test them. Throughout John's gospel, we see this dynamic of interaction between Jesus and His disciples in private settings and in heightened ways. And so, we come to our passage in John 4. The way that John tells this story about the woman at the well is really intriguing. In fact, you could almost read it in such a way that it may be that the heart of this story isn't about the woman at all. her coming to faith in Christ obviously is but there's something else going on you see he deals with this woman in two parts at the beginning of and the end of this text and in the middle between those two parts he gives us the words of Jesus to his disciples There is this unique and intentional interplay provided for us between Jesus and his followers. And I believe that this is a clear and intentional point of emphasis in John's writing. John is going to show us what is happening in the hearts and minds of the disciples and what Jesus is doing to instruct them and to shape their thinking. I believe that John is recording for us in this passage and throughout his entire gospel the work of Christ in cultivating the heart of His disciples. So what does it mean to cultivate? Well, it's an agrarian word. It's a farm term. In fact, its root meaning is this, to prepare and use land for crops and gardening. It has become a relational or a social word. It means to try to acquire or to develop something or someone, a skill, a sentiment, or a person. It's grown to mean to try to win the friendship or favor of someone. I'm trying to cultivate the relationship. And then most apropos, it's come to mean this, to improve or to develop someone or something. To improve, to make better, to refine, to elevate, to polish, to educate, to train, to enlighten, to enrich, to civilize, or to bring about to culture. To cultivate. I believe that there is a work that the Spirit of God does in the heart of His disciples. As Christ is building this relationship with them that actually prepares them for their ministry after He leaves. I believe that there's a work that the Spirit of God does in the heart then of every true believer that moves them toward a passion for evangelism. And I believe that this is a work of cultivating the heart. This is a setting that is filled with agrarian imagery. Obviously, he mentions the harvest. And all of it is marked by disrupting what would normally be expected? We're going to look at this passage tonight and we're going to see five unexpected things. When talking to this woman at the well, he says to her, Give me to drink. And then he turns around and says to her, I am the water of life. When talking to the disciples, he says, My meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. When looking at the harvest, he says, say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Look on the fields that are white already to harvest. That didn't make any sense. He said this, he that soweth and he that harvesteth or reapeth shall rejoice together. That doesn't make any sense. They don't work together. He says, I sent you to reap where you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you're entered into their labors. That doesn't make any sense. As we look at John chapter 4, I want us to see a series of five unexpected things. And in doing so, I want us to see that there are rationalizations that we make, or if you will, excuses that we give for why we won't or can't engage in evangelism that I believe this passage speaks to and undoes those excuses. So let's look at the passage together. First of all, the first unexpected thing comes in the context. The first unexpected thing is an unexpected field. Samaria, the city of Sychar. It's interesting that Jesus is chapter 4 beginning at the beginning of it, realizing that trouble is coming, It says, he knew in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Verse 4 says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Even just in the reading of that, you get the idea that Samaria is not the intended destination. He's going back to Galilee. But interestingly enough... When you think about what He is doing and where He is going and what He is after, it's just really interesting to me. We would think that the right place that He would find a harvest would be Galilee and not in Samaria. And yet, when we look at the two places, we're going to see that there's a harvest in Samaria and in Galilee, there are, there's this truth that, that, a, that a prophet is without honor in his own country. We're actually going to see that those in Sychar, when they come to Jesus, say, hey, look, we came because of your word, but now we believe because of his word. And when he gets to Galilee, he's going to encounter people and he will say to them, do you believe because of what you've seen? The expected field actually isn't a harvest field, and the unexpected field is a harvest field. The first unexpected thing is an unexpected field. He leaves Judea and departs for Galilee. He must needs to go through Samaria. I've done a good bit of reading and studying on this, and I'm not sure I buy into the whole idea that every Jew that traveled this route went around it and took the long way. I actually think there's a lot of history that demonstrates that people went right through Samaria. But what we do know is this it wasn't their destination. They would cut through, they wouldn't necessarily plan on making stops there, they didn't interact a lot. There was a difference between them and the people in Samaria. In fact, they looked on with great derision. The people in Samaria were seen as half-breeds. They were actually seen as people who carried out false worship because they didn't come to the temple to worship. They were looking for a Messiah that had a different name. There were differences. This wasn't the destination. And thus, I think we're going to see the response of the disciples, and it probably would have been most Jews' response and probably would have been our response. And so an unexpected field. So what then was is, is the excuse or what would be our excuse for why we're not going to engage in evangelism? It's simply this. Not here. Lord, I'll do evangelism but but not here. Not in this place. It has to do with the place, this place is too hard, these circumstances are too difficult. We would never say something like this, the gospel can't work here. But we might think it. Or we would rationalize maybe a little more like this, I need to give the gospel a better chance for success. This is really, this is really hard. This is putting the gospel to the test. But look friends, here's our reality. The world is a harsh place. We learned in chapel today that the world will hate us because it hated Jesus, and it will persecute us because we have the only antidote to the damning delusion of Satan that keeps men in lostness and blindness, and that antidote is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I see three all-too-common reactions to the world by Christians. And they're more pronounced at different times depending on what is happening in the culture. Today, with the upheaval that's happening in our culture and the way we see things changing, the way we see what you and I have considered to be norms are shifting. The ethical basis for what we think is reality is shifting. Marriage is being redefined, gender is becoming fluid, life is being redefined. And those of us who hold to what the Bible says as being authoritative, look at that and and it repulses us. And so one of the first reactions to a world like this is anger. How dare you? You're messing up my life. You're going to mess up my world for my kids. How do you expect my grandkids to live in a place like that? How dare you mess up the public schools the way you're messing them up with your wokeism? How dare you change society? Do you realize what you are doing? And one of the things that happens when we become angry at the world is we become distant from the world. And anger replaces our passion for the lost people in that world. We think we're righteous and we think we're moral and we think we're justified for being angry at this world. But the anger in our heart keeps us from cultivating a heart for the harvest. A second would be accommodation. We get really comfortable with the world. You know there's a reason this same John would implore believers to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of the Father abideth forever. There's a reason he would say to believers don't fall in love with this present evil world, because it's all too easy for us to become comfortable and to accommodate the world. And friends, I assure you this if you love the world in its lostness, you'll never love them to Christ. Because you don't see their need to change. Then there's a third response. And it's a response not of anger or of accommodation, it's a response of apathy. How many of you have played Super Mario Brothers? I have too, very little, but I have. So you would be able to relate to this. I was playing with my children, and there's a part of the game where they really needed me to be alive, apparently. And so we're going through a phase of the game and I've got my children yelling at me, dad, bubble, bubble, bubble. I'm like, well, am I supposed to froth at the mouth? Or like, what does that even mean? So then they showed me how to bubble. And I realized I could play all night long and bubble. Well, for those of you who aren't Super Mario Bros. aficionados, Bubble is a feature where you can go into a bubble and nothing can kill you. You just kind of bubble around. It's really not any fun, (laughs) but it keeps you alive. You know what, friends? All too often, we as believers live in a world that is without Christ, and we move into our Christian moral bubble. And we bounce off the people of this world thinking we're safe, all the while they're heading to a Christless eternity. We look at the world that we're in, and either because of anger or accommodation or even apathy that causes us to bubble, we make the excuse, not here, no, 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 not here. There will be a right place, I'm not sure where it is or how it will happen. There'll be a right place. And then, then I'll tell somebody about Jesus. Then I'll talk to them about their losses. Then I'll talk to them about their sin. But not here. No, no, no. No, no, no. Not here. All the while, Paul would write to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He said that you are the salt of the earth. You see, the gospel is light that is intended to shine in a dark place, not a light place. The gospel is salt that is intended to season that which is otherwise bitter or distasteful. It is a preservative that is intended to be applied to that which is otherwise decaying. God calls us to declare the gospel in a hard place, but we make the excuse, not here. You see, the first unexpected thing, addressing our first excuse, is an unexpected field. Then secondly, I want you to see an unexpected message. His disciples have been sent away to go get food. That was their mission. Go get us something to eat. And they come back. Verse 33, therefore, said the disciples one to another, hath anybody brought him ought to eat? Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You see, the unexpected message to them was this, I have meat to eat that you know not of. It's unexpected. John often moves the narrative of his gospel along through misunderstanding, In particular, the misunderstanding of his disciples. Things happen, or Jesus says something, and they're, like, scratching their heads, like, did did I miss something? And we see that this is a process that Jesus is going to use to develop them or to cultivate their hearts for ministry, and that's what's happening here. Obviously, Jesus sent them away to get food, and when they return and offer it to him, he says, I don't need your food. I have food that you don't know about. So they naturally think that someone has given them something to eat. But Jesus is sharing with them an unexpected message. There is something more important than the temporal. Jesus in Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4 directly quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 when he is tempted by Satan to change stones into bread in order to satisfy his own hunger. And I believe that he here makes reference to the same truth in giving instruction to his disciples. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says this, and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. You see, this is a teaching moment. This is a moment where Jesus is highlighting a difference between the way they are thinking and the way that he is thinking. So, the excuse that we would make would be this not this. First, not here, now, not this. This is not our plan. We need to get our education, we need to establish our career. We have other priorities, so, not this. Because I have to do this. Simply for them, it was what are you doing talking to her? And what are you talking about a harvest for? You sent us to get food and we got to do food. But Jesus is focused on something else. See, Jesus came to do the Father's will. And he always, by priority, did the Father's will. All of Jesus' ministry was carried out in submission to the will of his Father, and that is what consumed him. So even when he was tired, when there was a crowd to minister to, we see him choose to minister. When he is hungry, we see him choose to, to, to continue to minister to people. And in ministering to them, we hear him say, man, I'm not like, like on fumes right now, because this is what I came to do. Have you ever asked, why did Jesus come? What was it that is consuming his thinking? What is it that is then driving him as he lives out his life in ministry? I found 12 things just in the Gospels. There's more in other places. But I want you to listen to them because I want them to, you to see how they weave together. John 17, 4 says this, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Then, when hanging on the cross as a sin-bearer for the sins of the whole world, as a vicarious sacrifice and a satisfactory substitute, we read these words of John from John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst... And then he says, when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. You see, on the cross, he could say, the ultimate purpose that the Father sent me to accomplish, it is all done in every detail because I lived it with passion. That's what I was focused on. All of it where I went, what I said, what I taught, who I interacted with, when I healed somebody, when I didn't heal somebody, all of it was ultimately directed by this passion. I want to do what God wants me to do. And what was that? What was this food that sustained him? Well, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5:17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did that mean? Jesus said he came to divide, Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What does that mean? I think as he moves through his purpose, he explains it, Matthew 10, 34. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. How? Mark 2, 17, He came to call sinners, those who are well, have no need of a physician. So, when I come, those are going to be people that might receive the sword. That's where the division will come, because they don't think they need me. But I've come to call those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 5, 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to serve and to give His life. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus came to proclaim good news. Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus went on to say that He came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came that the world might be saved, John 3.17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, when you put it all together, John 10.10 tells us a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John 12, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And he says this when standing before Pilate in John 18, 37. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Friends, hear me. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And when He left, He gave us a great commission. And we so easily make the excuse, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. I have to do that, I have to get my education, I have to get my career, I have to establish my family, I have to figure out where I want to live, and I ask you, what is it that is at the end of your list that finally now you can say, it's all done, so I'll do the will of the Father in sharing the gospel? because I believe what Jesus is saying to these disciples is it should be the first thing on the list. It should be the thing that permeates all the other things in life, that your career gives you a mission field, that your education prepares you for a mission field, that the gospel ought to be at the top of our mind. Thirdly, I want us to see an unexpected messenger. We won't go into the story, but this woman that they're wondering why he's even talking to her doesn't just get saved, she actually becomes the evangelist. They marveled that He talked with this woman. And then John records for us that the woman then left her water pot. Again, comparison. Before we get to this chapter, chapter 3, we have Nicodemus, a religious ruler who comes to Jesus by night. He was a man and a Jew and a ruler. He was learned and powerful and respected and orthodox and theologically trained. And we would say, now there, there's a candidate for salvation. And then there's this woman. She's a woman in their culture. She's a Samaritan. She's a moral outcast. She was unlearned. She was without influence. She's despised, and she's capable of only some form of a cheap folk religion. And you know what we see? Through Jesus' eyes, they both needed to be saved. But only this one of the two is the one that we know of that becomes an evangelist at this point. Jesus' disciples come back, and they interrupt this conversation, it seems. They're there consumed with food, and we see this unexpected messenger because she leaves her water pot, and off she goes into Sychar. She goes back to the city, and it's shocking, right? Why is she at the well in the middle of the day? To avoid people. So, she comes because she needs water, so she comes to get this Water. And here's a stark reality. Whatever happens with Jesus, it is so impacting to her that two things are true. One, she leaves her water pot, and two, she runs back to the people she's avoiding. You see, our third excuse is this, not me. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. I'm too broken. I don't have the words to say. There are others who do it better. Somebody else has better language. Other people can relate. I, I, and we have all these reasons why it's not me. See, the disciples thought that this woman was an unlikely candidate for the gospel, and that is exactly what made her a likely candidate to be an evangelist. You look through this story, it's striking. What is striking the most is whatever happens when she comes to the realization of who Jesus is and why he came. There's now an eagerness to tell people about it. So notice the statement that she makes when she goes to the townsfolk. She says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What was the very thing she was hiding? She was hiding from people because they knew what she had done. They knew how immoral she had been, and she was an outcast from them. And now she comes and says, here's a person that told me everything I ever did. Could be some hyperbole, because we didn't see that in the conversation with Jesus, but what she knows is this, He knows all about me. He knows every piece of my life, and He loved me in spite of it. Then notice the question that she asks. She asks this interesting question to them, a probing question. Could this be the Christ? And through her words, somehow, the people are so impacted and impressed by the change in her, by the candor that's come to her life, by the the statement of reality that she mentions about this one, that they're drawn to him. the one they've cast out, the one that lives in the shadows and avoids them, is now the very one that they're listening to and intrigued by. You see, God intends to use people who are gripped by His grace, People who realize what God has done in saving them. People who can't get over the unmerited love of God that He displayed in sending His own Son to die for their sin. Friends, I believe that we lose evangelistic fervor because we have lost the fervor of our own conversion. You see, she's an unexpected messenger, but she shouldn't be. She has just had a fresh dose of saving grace. And it's those who are gripped by that grace that are to be the messengers of the gospel. Are you? Have you gotten over what Jesus has done for you? Have you gotten over the mountains of sin debt that He paid for you? Fourthly, I want us to see there's an unexpected harvest time. Verse 35 says, say not ye. So he's referencing their thinking. This is what you're thinking. This is what the norm would be. There are yet four months and then cometh harvest. But I say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they're white already. Already. To harvest, And I believe he really engages them. There's a number of explanations for what may be going on here in this passage of Scripture. Everything from ancient myths to to modern Proverbs. But no matter what it is, I believe that Jesus simply at this point is pointing out to them that by ordinary thinking, the way you would do the math, you would say there are four months between sowing and harvest. You're thinking in natural terms. You're thinking about the way things are. And the way you're thinking right now, where we are at, what we're going through, we're passing through Samaria, we're going to Galilee, what you are thinking in your mind is, this is not harvest time. And he says, I want you to look on the fields. There's an illustration here for you. You're right, you're looking out there, and in your thinking, in normal thinking, according to the normal laws of nature, it's not time for harvest. But I want you to know I'm telling you something different. And our excuse is this, not now. Not now. We tell ourselves that the timing is not conducive. We put off the opportunity of now by telling ourselves that we'll do it later. But Jesus, in verse 36, uses this little phrase, even now. It could be read with verse 35, but I think in John's normal usage, it fits his argument better that it comes in verse 36. And so he's saying, even now the reaper draws his wages, or even now the one that is harvesting is harvesting. You're saying it's not for four months, but I'm telling you, it's happening right now. And I believe he's making reference to the fact that he knows this woman has gone into town and the people of Sychar are coming to him. The harvest is being harvested. The one who is reaping is working right now and the wages are being harvested. And what he's saying to them is in answer to our excuse and to their excuse, when is the time? We look at the circumstances and we rationalize and we think through them and we try to explain it away and we say, ah, it just wasn't right or it just wasn't this or it just wasn't that. And the reality is we are avoiding sharing the gospel because we don't think the the timing or the conversation is conducive. And the reality is what Jesus is saying to them here is he talks about this timing and and the, the sower and the reaper being glad together. He references this incredible truth that I think comes from Amos 19 where he talks about the plowman overtaking the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that sows the seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I believe that he's given them a picture. This is something different than the normal planting and harvesting schedule. This is something that God does, and it's outside of the normal, natural order. This is the work of God, and you get to be a part of it in unique and unusual ways that God Himself should get the glory for it. Just share the gospel. If there's someone who will listen don't look for the circumstances to all align in some magical or mystical way. Lean in, press in to sharing with them as much as they will allow your faith in Christ, why Jesus came, what Jesus did. I believe what Jesus is doing here actually is leaning in, and He says, in this is this truth now going to be seen, that one sows and another reaps. You see, these disciples had gone to Sychar, and they found bread, and they came back, and they come to Jesus and say, what in the world are you doing? And the woman leaves and goes into the same city and shares the gospel and brings a crowd to Jesus. They totally missed it. And it would be easy for Jesus to say, okay, boys, you weren't thinking right. You missed it. Why don't you go stand over there? Because this lady has done some gospel work, and now she's going to get to harvest. Maybe next time you'll figure this out, and you'll get involved. And Jesus doesn't do that. He actually says to them, you're going to get to enjoy the harvest, even though you didn't labor, even though you didn't sow the seed. And there's this wonderful truth, friends that we never know what God has done before we enter. It could be that we enter into a field and God has just called us to plow or God has called us to sow seed and somewhere at some time in some future day, someone else will come into that field and they'll get to harvest that growing seed. But the reality is there are times that we step into a field thinking we're going to have to plow and someone's already plowed and somebody's already sown seed and God has already watered and there is a harvest ripe To be harvested, and God allows us to do that. Don't make the excuse. It says this isn't the time, not now. And so, then one last thing: an unexpected harvest. Those who came from Sychar said, "We believe not just because of your word, but because of His." word. Verse 39 says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. They believed on him for the saying of the woman, and then they believe because of his word. Our excuse oftentimes is not them. Not them. God, that person, I don't know. Somebody may be able to get through to them, but but not me. Not them. Look at them. Look how hardened they are. Look how wicked they are. Look how distant they are. Look how unkind they are. God, they're not my audience. They may be somebody's audience, but they're not my audience. And you see, that's exactly what the disciples would have been thinking. But that's not what Jesus was thinking. And a remarkable truth comes out of this passage. you realize John gives Jesus a title? And he uses these Samaritans to give it to him. It's the only place that we find it. John is going to record it again in John 4, 14. But the Samaritans confess that this man, Jesus, actually is the Savior of the world. They're the only ones to give him that title. You think they appreciated that he wasn't just a Jewish Messiah? That he didn't just come to save Jews? He came to save them. False worship, half-breeds, unloved, uncared for by the Jewish people who called themselves God's people. This one was a Jewish Messiah, but to them he was the Savior of the world. Oh, young people, you will not meet a person made in the image of God that Jesus doesn't have the capacity to be their Savior. You look at them and you think, ah, man, I don't know. Maybe somebody else, but I can't witness to them. Not, Not them. See, when we say things like that or any of these other excuses, do you realize that we're actually impugning the gospel and we're impugning the God of the gospel? Jesus here and all these unexpected things undoes their excuses. I want to finish with one story and then we'll close. I was pastoring in central Florida. I was young, raw, ripe, gung-ho, wanted to teach the Bible, wanted to teach people how to defend their faith. I was filled with passion. God had been working in my heart and I decided that one of the things I was going to do was teach a course on the cults. I could really teach people right from wrong and truth. And as I got into that, I'd used all my books and all my notes. And God really burned in my heart that if I was going to do this, I actually needed to go see what it was the cults actually taught. The internet was a new thing back then. So I started going to the web pages of each of the cults that I was going to teach on. I'd go to the Jehovah's Witnesses web page, I'd look at what they actually said. I got that, I compared it to the Bible, and that's what I was teaching. I did that with Jehovah's Witnesses. I did that with Seventh-day Adventists. I did that with Mormons. And God was doing a work in my heart. In the process of doing that, my own heart began breaking for the people that were bound in the darkness of these cults. Because it was so close to what the Bible said, and yet it was error, and it was damning. And God had softened my heart for the very people that I came in to say, look, church, I want to teach you how these people are so wrong." And God broke my heart that they were so lost. On a Sunday night, I got up to carry out our service the way I normally did. And we sang and I got up to preach. And I looked back at the back of the church auditorium. And there were three young men in black pants and white shirts and black ties. And I knew immediately, I said to myself, I bet if I go outside, there's three bicycles. And sure enough, there were. I preached that night. We went through the service. The service ended. And I thought, I want to see if I can get to those guys. Started to make my way down the aisle. But as I was like a quarter way down the aisle, they had come the other three quarters. These guys walked up to me and stuck their hand out. Pastor, thank you. That was a wonderful message. We were wondering if we could come by and visit you sometime. I'm thinking, wow, like this is amazing. Of course, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow would be great. We would love to come by and see you tomorrow. We talk for a while. They meet people in the church, and off they go. And I think, Lord, you're going to give me the opportunity after having preached to share the gospel with these three young Mormon missionaries. Little did I know that Mormon elder Micah Wilder had decided... That he was going to come to Calvary Baptist Church in Winter Garden, and he was going to convert the pastor to Mormonism and thus lead the entire congregation into Mormonism. He came in fully convinced that this is what's going to happen. I, this pastor, I think he's ripe for the picking. I don't know what I preached that night, but for a Mormon to think I'm good, I'm good to be picked, So he comes marching halfway down the church. Man, can I come by and see you and lead you into Mormonism? And I'm saying, Yeah, come on by. (laughs) So the next day, Micah and two of his friends come by, and we begin to talk. And I've just been studying Mormonism. So I get out my Book of Mormon, set it on the desk. I begin talking to them about it, I let them talk, walk me through the journey. I'm listening. And I'm answering. We have a great conversation. And I begin to give him truth from the Word of God. And Micah begins to wrestle with that. The next week, he comes to church. And he comes back again on Monday. And he brings two different people with him. We begin to talk again. After the third week, a lady in my church comes up and says, Hey, Pastor, do you know those guys that have been coming to church? I knew exactly who she was talking about. I was like, yeah. She said, well, they came to my house. Knocked on the door, and I came out and opened the door, and there they were, and they wanted to tell me about Mormonism, and I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian. They said, oh, where do you go to church? And I said, well, I go to Calvary Baptist Church in Wintergarden. They said, oh, we go there too. (laughs) And she said, Pastor, I think the, the fact that they're coming to church is something they're trying to use to influence people towards Mormonism. And my heart broke. So that week I met with them and I asked them about that. And then I said, gentlemen, I need you to know something. You and I don't believe the same thing. According to what you believe, if I believe what I believe about Jesus, when I die, I'm not going to heaven. And according to what I believe, if you believe what you believe when you die, you're going to go to hell. We don't believe the same thing. And I can't put the gospel at jeopardy, so we're not going to be able to meet anymore. I'll never forget it. Michael Wilder began weeping. He was somewhere between sad and angry, and he said, you can't say that. I believe you believe the Bible. I believe that you really do love God. You can't say that. You can't say that we don't believe the same thing. And I said, Micah, we don't believe the same thing. In that conversation, I said to him, Micah. Do you believe that this, the Book of Mormon, is based on this, the Bible? He said, yes. I said, have you ever read this to prove that this is based on this? He said, no. I said, then I want to challenge you. I want you to put this, the Book of Mormon, away. And I want you to read this like a child. Like it's the very first time you ever saw it. Well, Michael left my office angry, and he purposed that he was going to read the Bible and he's going to re- prove that Baptist pastor wrong and bring him into Mormonism. Over the course of the next six months, Micah read the Bible completely three times and he read the New Testament ten times. And reading the Bible all by himself, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of his Mormon mission, they have to go in and bear witness to the fact that they believe everything that Mormonism teaches and that the prophet is the prophet. And Micah knew what was going to happen, and he walked in that day for examination, and he said, I don't believe the Book of Mormon. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I've asked Him to save me from my sins. He was called back to Utah, Salt Lake City. He was brought before a council. He was excommunicated for Mormonism. His mom was a tenured professor at BYU. He went and shared his faith with his mom, and it took a while, but his mom came to faith in Jesus Christ. His girlfriend left Utah, they married, his brother and sister both came to faith in Christ. And they wrote their story, his mom wrote a book called Unveiling Grace, which takes the Mormon temple and turns it upside down to show that it actually is truth standing on its head, its error. Micah wrote his book called Passport to Heaven, which is the testimony of him coming to faith in Christ. And out of his testimony, thousands of young Mormons have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Micah was not an obvious candidate for the gospel. It wasn't a ready field. It wasn't somebody that I normally would have been ready to share the gospel with thinking, I'm going to have great success here. I would have given every excuse in the book. And that's why I'm so thankful that I can stand before you tonight and say, Alan Benson did not lead Michael Wilder to Christ. I pointed him to the Word of God. And God did something beyond what I, and a simple witness, could ever do, the Word of God is quick, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word of God that brings men to faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And young people, I believe that what God wants to do in cultivating in us a heart for the harvest is actually to bring us back to a place where we say, no more excuses. No more excuses. God, I want to share my faith in Christ with those that you are working in so that they might come to faith in Christ. God, I want to be a ready witness wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, to whoever is there. And I want you to give a harvest that maybe I never expected because, God, you deserve the glory. Jesus said to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look on the field. The cultivating of our heart is a call to lift above our circumstances and ask God to renew in us a passion for the gospel and for those who are lost. I'm praying that through the services this week and this theme, what God will do is cultivate every one of our hearts with gospel passion. Let's pray. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Maybe tonight simply you're sitting here and you would say, whew, you hit every one of my excuses. But honestly, in my heart, I wish I were an evangelist. Those excuses are real things for me. There's real fears, and there's real problems, and there's real priorities, and the world is hard. All of those things are true, but honestly, in my heart of hearts, I wish I were an evangelist. I wish I could overcome all of that and just tell people about my faith in Christ. Share with them the gospel. That's what I want. And tonight, God spoken to my heart. And with my head bowed and my heart bowed, I'm asking Him, God, cultivate my heart, help me to overcome my fears, help me to climb over my excuses, and help me to purpose, to engage people with the gospel. If that's you tonight, would you slip up your hand and say, yeah, that's me. God's spoken to my heart, and I want Him to sow work in me, and I climb over my excuses, And I'm ready to be a witness for him. Father, thank you. Do this work in us. Help us to look on the fields and see the opportunity. Help us to turn away from our excuses of hard people and hard places and other times and different priorities. God, I pray that you'd help us to live every day with a passion to share Christ with those in darkness all around us. God, raise up from among us another generation of soul-conscious believers who are ready and eager to point people to the cross. And God, would you bless us with a harvest of souls for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, you're dismissed.